Welcome to episode 81 of the Historic Performance Podcast featuring Jared Sigmund, strength and conditioning coach at Inspired Athletics and former head United States Women's Rugby Sevens National Team strength and conditioning coach. This uh, podcast was actually recorded back in mid-October, but there's some sound issues with it, which I finally was able to figure out. But in this podcast, he talks about his time with the Women's Rugby Sevens program. Most importantly, the planning of the Olympic quad, the development of women's rugby in the United States, annual planning, and recovery methods used in between games and tournaments because in rugby sevens, sometimes you're playing three games in one day, which obviously is going to attack players physiologically and recovery becomes paramount. I mean, it's a really interesting podcast. I'm really finally glad to get it out there because there was some great information offered by Jared. So with all that being said, let's get started. Welcome back to the Historic Performance Podcast. Today, I am joined by Jared Sigmund. Jared, how are you doing? I'm doing real good today. Jared, it's a pleasure having you on. I look forward to talking about your role at Women's Rugby Sevens here in the United States. But to start us off, could you just tell us a little bit about your background, such as uh, where you went to school and how you ended up working with uh, the Women's rugby sevens program yeah uh, i mean with the women's rugby program the seven side it's uh it's hard to get yourself into it you'd think in the united states right there's no like pathway um but my pathway was through the olympic training center um so in 2012 right before london the olympic games uh, i went there as an intern after completing my education at the university of minnesota worked with some great staff um cal deets and sarah wiley amongst others that brought me to the training center and then at the training center uh, I got the opportunity when the residency program started in 2012 um, to, to work with them their head coach had just uh, started January just as me he's Canadian and being from the north we kind of got along good uh, just kidding but uh yeah so he invited me out to go do their testing their physical warm-ups and uh, a couple other things um, talked about in the weight room as far as implementing some of the speed stuff and to get them up to speed as far as um, because rugby sevens doesn't usually pull a lot of high class athletes so especially when 2012 when the program started and I'll talk more about this later um, how the program developed um, so we had to do a lot of groundwork stuff to actually get them uh, so they could compete and compete well on the series um, so after that the staffs that really started to develop, we hired an athletic trainer, we hired myself, we hired a video analysis, a manager. Um, the staff really started to assemble. From there, we uh, took the next four years by storm. Yeah, the 2016 Olympics, which just finished probably around two months ago now, uh, yeah. was the first time that Rugby 7 was featuring it. And I believe Rugby Union had been featured in the 1924 Olympics, but not Rugby 7s. Um, so maybe just to give a little background, you know, what, what is rugby sevens like, um, and how is it different than rugby union? Yeah. Uh, so rugby sevens, uh, same field as rugby union, uh, except from 15 players, you get down to seven. So how that changes is the conditioning is upped completely. Um, and the time constraints on the game are very minimal. So it's a fast, fast paced game. Balls put into play really fast. The referees are encouraging you to go fast and move fast with the ball. 
time constraints on they'll, they'll place the ball just kind of like in football or basketball there's a play clock as soon as the time's up i mean you're gonna get another penalty if you don't take it he'll say place the ball or he'll even card you and kick you off the field so they really put a, a tempo to the game which keeps it exciting i think it's uh, a little more exciting than the 15s aside and then the tournament format is the other key to it um so you'll play three games over two days most of the time the time constraints of the game is 14 minutes two seven-minute halves with a two-minute rest in between. And then in between games, you'll play usually every two to three hours. And then those three games, you'll play back-to-back days on most tournaments. So you'll play six games of 14 minutes uh, in two days. I know we're going to be getting to that um, later in the podcast, especially how it goes about in terms of recovering between those periods. But I, I think it would be great to start off right at the beginning. Prior to 2012... There wasn't a residency program for rugby sevens because it wasn't an an Olympic sport, but it got approved for the 2016 Olympics. And now you're gearing up, getting all the staff. So how did your position as a strength and conditioning coach evolve throughout that quad? Uh, It's a great, it's a great question. A lot of times with these uh, national governing bodies, there's, there's minimal budgets and minimal support. Um, We aren't funded through the government like a lot of uh, other countries. So we find ways to make it work. Um, and, and we have a good athlete pool usually, so that keeps us pretty competitive in the, the Olympics. But how, how it kind of went and the series expanded and the program expanded, um, I went from using stopwatches <laughs> to, to monitor our conditioning to Polar Team 2 system to eventually like GPS Sport. Um, but we had a lot of resources at the Olympic Training Center. So we had a biomechanist, we had sports psych, and a, and a full-time nutritionist. So I took advantage of that a lot of times. Um, in the off seasons, and we kind of mixed in and find like a gold standard for testing. The biomechanics, um, Phil, and uh, Phil cheating. Uh, we use like uh, opti jump, so we'd measure like the stride weight and stride frequency, visualize it on a camera, do some flying sixties, try to really constrain and work on the athlete's uh, speed tech. We use force plates for return to play strategies, along with like a single leg triple jump, especially with the ACLs and the women's side, kind of to predict. How fast we could get them back and like where they were what percentage of back to their original um testing data were they back to 100 percent were they 80 percent or how far along the path we are and then we d- develop like a strategy of what kind of methods we'd use to go from there otherwise as far as like the series the series expanded it was only four stops originally then it went by the time right before the olympics it bumped up to seven stops so we're adding more stops and then also we're adding back-to-back stops so usually the series is played from November in Dubai to a Europe stop, usually Amsterdam or London in May, um, usually like a month break. But sometimes towards the end of the Olympic cycle, as the women's side really gained more funding, gained more fans, gained more support, and they knew Rio was coming up, they wanted to make it more and more competitive. These programs became full-time residency programs like we did. And they put back-to-back tour stops on there. So we'd go from a USA stop to a Canada stop back-to-back, along with the recovery and all the other stuff kind of really changes how you develop your program and how we built our, our annual plan out. Just to back up a second. So yeah. you, you mentioned the series. So it starts in November. The series involves a series of tournament stops. But then how is the ranking um, figured out at the end? Yeah, good question. So the ranking is based on previous years so you come in based off how you rank previously and then how you rank and how you accumulate points throughout the series stops 
And then for the Olympics, how it was ranked was over two years, your accumulation of points at each stop. So if you get first place, you get 20 points. Second place, you get 18. And so far, all the way down, if 12th place, you get one point. So you get those over each tournament stop. So six stops, say you got uh, first place that many times, you got 80 points. Um, or whatever it is, how many series stops there were that year. Then you take that 80 points, you add it to the next year, and then those, maybe you got 160 if you finish first in all five stops those those years. Then you get to be first place overall ranked in the Olympic pool going into it. So there was a very good importance going into it at each stop, and there was a, a good amount of pressure as it built. And it was the first time for our program to experience that. So there was a lot of uh, cultural stuff that we had to take care of and, and keeping the focus. And that was the one of the bigger jobs of the uh, <laughs> the program in the SNC coach, I think. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think one thing that you previously mentioned as well was the annual planning. Yeah. So uh, with the expansion of, of the series, how did that go about affecting your annual plan? What what had to be modified? Depending on, yeah, good question. A lot, I forgot to mention, as is too, in 2013, we had a World Cup built into it. So we lost our, basically I lost our off season. It was on the end of May and going into it. So there, there's priorities. You have to have that give-take relationship and have a great relationship with the head coach. To have that understanding how much time we can actually spend developing the, the fundamental strengths, the core strengths that we want to establish, maybe the or do we just need conditioning right now so we can go out and play and get to the get to the ball and make the tackles, you know. Um, so there's a give take relationship, but there was always the, the understanding that we didn't want to put our athletes out there with the that they might get hurt. You know, we always put that at the top on our charts. Let's get a little into the, the periodization, the nuts and bolts of, of the planning. So the annual planning and how you go about distributing blocks. So we know that the series starts around November. I believe you said it ends around May, if correct. Yep. And then beyond that, if you don't have a World Cup or if you don't have an Olympics, that's your off season. Right. Um, yep. If that's the correct understanding. That is it. So what are some of the qualities that you're trying to build? And let's start in the off season. What are some of the qualities that you're trying to build during the off season? which is this chunk of time between May and November where there's not really a focus on competition. Right. So we did it a couple different ways. We tried to go more of the Charlie Francis method, go short to long, work on top speed, max strength, nervous system days, usually two, two for sure within a week, and then maybe, maybe even three if we brought it in and it was kind of like a sub-maximal one on one of the days. So it'd be like a Monday, Thursday, high intensity speed sessions both days and then like low field volume for the athletes maybe like a thousand meters passing skill stuff fun kind of games uh kind of just building the cultural skills and the uh, fundamental skills that they need passing catching um understanding game plan film days we're on those days and then the we still built in a little bit of conditioning but then we did my second year we did a lot more uh, pool conditioning uh off feet conditioning rowing conditioning we didn't have the pounding on the feet as much We'd mix in some tempo runs on that third day, usually on that Wednesday, and then kind of repeat uh, back to the CNS day on Thursday, and then usually tempo runs, pool conditioning stuff, off-feet conditioning on Thursday, and then Saturday was more of a off day. Do it on your own. I prescribe different activities and send them in an email format, and then this was like the expectations um, just kind of mapped out. Um, but then, so that would be like the weekly format. And then the, as the weeks progressed, we played around with some triphasic stuff with, uh, that I learned in the uh, under Caldeets in Minnesota. We do eccentric block and then we do a uh, isometric and then concentric. And then we'd go into some unilateral strength and then go back into like a, a speed power block. And then as we kind of played with it, we m made sure the days made sense with how we wanted to do it and how the coach wanted it to be, to be on the field. 
um, as far as the skill and the skill strength stuff. Like uh, if we had a strength day, we could pair lineouts and scrum work with that. So we're doing strength field and strength weight room in unison. Um, and then the next day I have a maybe lower intensity or if it's upper body, lower body, kind of play around with whatever it is, you know, um, just making it work and makes, making it make sense. Definitely. So when it came to the programming for the off season at the onset of the off season, would you have any performance testing that you were measuring from the players themselves? So then that you could make sure that you were working on specific qualities that that player needed or was it all just an overall program and you're trying to fit the players within those specific blocks? No, uh, so that's a good question. So my off-season planning is basically everybody's kind of doing this format. Everybody's in kind of do the eccentric. And let, because we, the end of the season, our, our strength levels kind of deteriorate. Um, our conditioning is our focus. Our sport uh, strengths are focused and all these other things are our focus. And the max strength kind of becomes a back, back burner stuff. To have great injury prevention and take that down. I believe you have to have great foundational strength, good max strength, be able to produce that force. So everybody does this. I see how you adapt to triphasic stuff. Then you either go into, we do an individual block, so individual needs. So if um, somebody has a really good strength number, then we'll move into a speed power block with them. Somebody has a poor max strength number, we'll do more max strength stuff with them. Somebody has poor conditioning, we'll do some muscle endurance. I'll back down their weight room stuff. We'll do some extra field conditioning stuff with it. So the overall cup is always full for everybody, but there's different stuff in the cup. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. Okay. And then for the last block before the Olympics, we had to have everybody do their, their unit groups. They had to be really good within their groups. So we have forwards group. We had a, a fly half and a scrum half group. And then we had a wings and centers group. So wings and centers are kind of like your wideouts, DBs, your speed guys, your uh, – your fly halves, your scrum halves are more like the point guards, and then the forwards are like the linemen, if you were like football comparison. or uh, So we got really specific, in the, and really specific in like the agility, the speed stuff we give them. Uh, everything was played with ball in hand, a 2v1 decision-making. Um, in the weight room is actually doing, uh, say it was a jerk, and then it was doing a line-out with a partner right after, you know. Um, so everything was paired together. It always had rugby in it. The emphasis rugby. It was with your partner. It was with your group. We were trying to create the culture really get the buy-in, you know, get the momentum going. Um, so that was kind of like how we finished those groupings. Yeah, so at the end, you were talking about increasing the specificity and then having them come in in their respective positional groups. Right. As you mentioned before, as the process evolved, you eventually had access to GPS. So how did the GPS information variables that you were collecting help you modify the specific drills for those position groups? Right. With the GPS units, we went from the game, we took game data, and then we used it to build out practices, and then we used it to build out individual needs. So the GPS is basically told us, you know, they run a thousand meters. Um, anybody could get a high-speed breakaway, whether you're a forward, a center, or a scrum half. Anybody could get that breakaway. Forty-meter sprint, middle of the game, could be fatigued, down on the charts, energy level way down. Anybody get that breakaway? So we had to prepare like. We still had to do the lateral agility stuff, but we still had everybody do the high-speed distances. So that's kind of why I didn't really do too much. And even in the individual unit groups at the end, they still had to make those uh, high-speed distance sprints at the end of it. But it was more around the agility stuff, the cone drills, the ball drills, and how we mimic those kind of stuff to make it work. But as far as the GPS stuff, 
we found to build out the annual plan, we used it more of that as a tool like that and to see CNS fatigue. So uh, every Monday and Thursday, we do warm-ups. Say it was in our off-season, we do a 60-meter fly at the end of warm-up, a 20-minute warm-up. Make sure they're good and warmed up. We did the, the build-ups and everything, the sprint speed drills, tempo drills, all into it, toe-tap drills, all that stuff. We all did that. Then you had your 60-meter sprint. Uh, so I I'm, I'm saw trends in that, see how you fatigue. We did that from month to month to month, 60-meter sprint, Monday and Thursdays, and then see how you diminish the maximally. And if you were trying to tail off, then I pulled you from like CNS volume in the weight room, but not necessarily conditioning volume. I used more of the palms that we used for monitoring. It was a player monitoring system that we developed. So we did sleep. We did RPEs as far as the session muscle soreness. Um, we did alcohol intake, hours of sleep, tools like this. So I could see that in comparison with the GPS data. And then I could start to pull, you know, like, and so I would go, so I would use, I would look at that data in the morning, go talk to the athlete during warm up. How do you feel this, this, and this report the athletic trainer, talk to their coach. Okay. We're doing this kind of stuff. We kind of already know where the session's going to go. I'm going to pull you a couple reps in the, in, in this session, just so you know, be prepared for that. So the GPS kind of give me that, the backing of the coaches and the athletic training staff. Okay, this is why we're doing it. Their volumes are high. Their palms are high. This, this, and this. It's not just me going in there guessing. It kind of you just started to develop systems over the years uh, to make the process more predictable. Yeah, for from the coaching side, Yeah. what, what type of variables were they interested in um, in terms of the GPS data that you're collecting? Yeah, so we do a live GPS, and uh, after each session, they go, just how many meters did you run? How many meters? Did I get the most meters? <laughs> I was worried about the meters that we ran. Me, I'm worried about the meters per minute of the session, maybe, or is that what we wanted? Because most games are played at around 100 meters per minute. And uh, so the higher-end games, maybe it's 120 meters per minute. Maybe it's low, 100, or around 80 meters per minute on, like, a low one. Where there's a lot of points scored or a lot of penalties, and people are kicking to touch a lot. So <laughs> for the girls, it was always just about the distance, but I wanted to see, make sure the intensity of the drill was and make sure they're getting subbed in if we were doing a conditioning game kind of drill where the volume was – we didn't have a control of the – actually how much they're running it was just a conditioning game so they were playing just free play basically which is what we did a lot of times just to develop their their core skills and decision making uh, we didn't want to just have them run for conditioning and do uh, maximum aerobic sprints for 30 minutes and not have ball in hand you know so we could improve their rugby skills because that's where we felt as a staff where they they lacked the compared to the other teams our conditioning was good but we needed more decision making more ball skills so we try to improve it like that yeah it's funny that you mentioned that it seems that it's uh something that happens with all athletes i know working with soccer players extensively one of when it comes to gps they're always like what is my total distance yeah. so <laughs> here it was like what's my total meters for a rugby player so it seems like it's a commonality even between sports yeah yeah it's funny like on our our daily plan that we draw out i give to the coach i try to give them like a a budget okay this is how much you can do during this week as far as high speed distance uh total distance xld cells and then like minutes <laughs> so they'd always uh try to get more push more 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 jared i'm going to take a brief pause here for a quick commercial break by our sponsors skin tech but in part two of this podcast when we come back jared and i are going to be discussing rugby specific conditioning drills resources for coaches interested in rugby and how to get involved as a strength and conditioning coach with rugby in the United States. And now a word about SkinTech. Before we get back to part two, I want to thank SkinTech for sponsoring this podcast episode. SkinTech are the creators of the first 
all-inclusive protective strength training shirt called the Apollo SS. The Apollo SS is currently being used by professional athletes in the NHL, NFL, MLS, and Team USA. It features 6.35 millimeters of XRD extreme impact foam and antimicrobial moisture wicking fabric. The best part is that it's designed and made in the United States. For more information, check them out at skintechfit.com. As an added bonus, all listeners have access to an exclusive promotional code HP20 to get 20% off your next order. So check it out either for yourself or for your athletes. And back to part two of this podcast episode with Jared Sigmund. U.S. women's rugby sevens, their conditioning was fairly spot on. One of the main issues that they had was their technical ability and that you wanted to make sure that, you know, they were continuing to develop the energy systems necessary for gameplay, but you also wanted them to develop the rugby side of it. So how did you combine the two within the specific drills? I know you just talked right now that you would give them basically a budget, but did you try also giving them specific, um, what is the physiological impact of different uh, technical drills that they're using? My first three years, I had the same coach. The last year as Olympic prep, we had three different coaches, including the first coach. Ideally, as I was building into the first years, I'd say the coach would say, I want this drill in this practice this week. I want to do these kind of drills. Uh, more defensive stuff, full field, uh, 7v7, open field. And then I'd say, okay, can we just do half field and can we do this much? So then if we do half field, it's going to be more XLD cells, but the total distance is probably going to be down and the high speed is going to be down. So you can kind of control where we're going with it just by that, by field size. And then obviously time constraint um, is another one. So that basically handles decision-making. Um, it doesn't do contact area, the strength endurance side of it, but it handles decision making and then maybe the kind of running volume you want, basically, right? So then the other side of it was like the combat strength and conditioning stuff. Um, we we really started to mix a lot of this in, um, as as I learned from Chris Brown and Mike Friday, they they brought this in uh, a lot more of the combat conditioning side of it. We we did a lot more of that, so it'd be like grappling, uh, creating mall situations where you're trying to wrestle them down or scrum rucking areas and it would just be repeat or repeat bag tackles go for time um go for poach ball so we'd mix in decision making within the the conditioning but was really just muscle endurance kind of like strongman stuff basically but really rugby specific and kind of decision making uh in hand of it so we use that to kind of control it and then we could see heart rate in that so you could see work rate are they actually going to a max heart rate? Are they kind of just laying on the ground doing nothing, kind of pretending like they're tired? So, <laughs> so you had that side of it. So, yeah. Based on all the game information that you're able to gather yeah. from an energy system standpoint, what what does a rugby sevens um, game look like? What what is it uh, predominantly? Is it an uh, a lactic aerobic sport similar to rugby union, or how does it differ? Yeah. So you'll see heart rates. Yeah, from the start of the game, you'll get uh, 90% max heart rate. It'll be there until maybe a try score of 60 seconds. Then it'll drop maybe 10 to 20%. And then at halftime, you'll get down to maybe 140 beats per minute or like maybe like 70%. And then it'll shoot right back up for the last seven minutes and it'll be above 90% max heart rate the whole time. So they're literally – and high-speed distances will be – depending on breakaways and gameplay kind of stuff. And if it's a uh, higher conditioning games, high speed distance can be 
one to 200 meters. So they're at 90%, 85% or above. So there's a, a good amount in there. But a lot of it's those XLD cells having to re-accelerate the, the power that you have to produce um, from zero to 10, you know, back and forth, and then getting up off the ground, tackling, and then repeating that again. And then there's probably 1,000 meters per half, so about 2,000 in a game. You're doing that back-to-back games, so you're doing that three times at 6,000. Two days, 12,000. Then you got warm-ups. Warm-ups are another 1,000 times six, so that's about 18,000 in two days. Um, so it's a good amount of volume. So we try to build our training so we get into those game weeks as we get in-season. As we were talking about out-of-season earlier, we talk in-season. We want to do two days of 20,000 meters that match those intensities. So we're actually doing more than we would in a game. And that's if a player played every minute. So our players are used to playing those kind of constraints. And a lot of times we'll do 10-minute halves instead of 7-minute halves. We'll maybe make the defense play down. We'll go 5v7 on attack, 5 on D. We'll take away the sweeper, take away another man. So they have to play and communicate a lot more, create that culture, teamwork. Um, So there's a lot of little different things we need to kind of challenge ourselves with. Um, And we kind of dictate, like, depending on – we feel like our athletes need more uh, conditioning going into the skills. We'll do the conditioning. If we feel like that tournament, our skills fall off at the end of the game, we'll do our conditioning, then we'll go to skills. But if we feel like our skills are good and we just want to improve our skills, obviously we'll do the higher motor development stuff first. So we'll do our skills first and then go into conditioning. But we try to challenge them and, and give them different things because you are a full-time residency program and stuff becomes stale sometimes. I think that's a good segue into something that was mentioned very at the beginning of the podcast, which is what a tournament looks like. So yeah. you're playing three games in one day. Uh, you just said it. Uh, weekend equates to around 18,000 meters, which is quite a lot. Yeah. So be- between games, sometimes you have one and a half, two hours uh, of rest in between. How do you go from game to game with that short amount of time? Is the recovery process look like between games? Right. So I guess I'll just start with the beginning of the day, like our game day uh, schedule usually. It's usually they wake up, we'll weigh them, they enter their palms for their mood state sleep hours, those kind of things, how they feel, muscle soreness. We'll do like a water bottle check, make sure they're hydrated. Um, we'll put compression gear on, compression check, and then we'll do a hydration check. Sometimes it's just literally me asking them questions, are you hydrated? In the beginning, I actually did hydration chest on all of them, make sure they're in the right hydration, um, especially with the flying that we do internationally. Uh, with the first couple of days, where they'll maybe be dehydrated, especially if we got a new athlete. It's just, it's just about doing it at one time, and then they realize what they need to do, and we educate them. Before we leave, usually at the training center, like this is kind of amount of fluid you need to intake and um, how much time you need to do it. Um, mix in with time you're supposed to sleep on the plane. We'll have a whole sleep schedule and that whole setup, but that kind of gets away from the point. So we'll do a post. We'll do a little breakfast, um, either if it's from the the bag or it's from uh, going down the dining hall getting food. Sometimes they don't like to eat the breakfast food at these tournaments. Sometimes you're in China and it's uh, a toast <laughs> and some weird eggs and yeah, I can imagine yeah yeah so we'll have a food bag that we'll bring along might just have peanut butter jellies a protein smoothie that i'll make or they'll make themselves then we we kind of established it with our nutritionists and stuff like that um and then we'll do a we'll get them out we'll do a little activation so it's usually some banded exercises through some movements that replicate the sport some rugby drills um usually the head coach will come down he'll do it with me some rugby drills some passing drills or just move the ball around um, we'll do a nutritional thing again. So we'll do electrolytes. We'll take another snack. 
And this is usually like two hours before a game. And we'll do a run sheet. We'll actually go over to the stadium, look at taped, and then we'll do maybe pre-warm-up. So pre-warm-up routine usually is maybe some caffeine gum or some more electrolytes or another snack. They'll go do a warm-up, come back in, change their jerseys. They'll go play the game. Post-game cool-down, I'll be on the field. I'll run through a cool-down. Either me or a traveling nutritionist will have smoothies for them as soon as they get done. Uh, we'll have smoothies. We'll have a snack. Uh, maybe sometimes we'll go to lunch if it's like a midday game. We'll do a lunch in between those tours, depending on time constraints. Um, and then we'll go into treatment, compression, Normatec, and then we'll have them relax. And that's just the physical side of it, the mental side of it. We we try to address, like, we have a, like a couple things we call them. We have a couple R words. We re-energize, refuel, and then relax are like the big ones that we try to get them to, to do. And then release in the cool down to make sure they're getting rid of it, the energy from the last game. If it's a win or a loss, just get it out, get it over with. Then we can move on to the next game. And it's the ups and downs of the tournament that are whoever does that the best usually. Definitely. I hadn't even thought about the mental side of it because if you end up losing a game, that's obviously going to be um, in your mindset for the, for the next game. Um, if, if it isn't dealt with. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And we had a tough draw on the Olympics and, uh, I was really proud of the girls, how they came back and finished that day three, because, uh, we had quarterfinal game against New Zealand. And, uh, that was, that was when we finally realized that we weren't gonna, we weren't gonna get a medal and the girls could have, uh, packed their bags and pretty much went home, but we came out the next day and won our next two games. And, and it was a proud feeling for them and the staff. Jared, there's a lot of young strength coaches that end up listening to this podcast and you ended up going to Olympic training center as an intern. Then that ended up becoming a position with women's rugby. What recommendations would you have for young strength coaches or just embarking on, on this journey as a strength coach? I think the biggest thing is you can do is be ready, be ready mentally to throw yourself out there, ask those questions, don't hold back um, and look for a spot or a passion that you really think you can fit and be successful in. For me, it was a team sport that I that I played in football in college. Uh, I really grasped it towards that. And the, the contact area, the mechanics were the kind of the same. Um, the cultural things, you have to come together as one before you can conquer the other side of it. Um, so be ready for that opportunity and really embrace it. And don't don't uh, think you're too big or too good for anything. You got to go take the towels to the dryer and dry them. Go ahead and dry them. <laughs> we all got to be there and we all been there. Definitely. Other thing that I have a question, resources for rugby sevens. If people want to go out there and learn more about what happens from a physiological sense for some of these young strength coaches, if that's the route they want to go, what are some of your go-to resources? Uh, that's a good question. In the U.S., it's not you're not going to find a whole lot, honestly. For me, it was even a struggle. I had to talk to I – I actually used a lot of sport coaches from other USOC sports and tried to develop those kind of methodologies they used and then just use those same methods in Rugby Sevens to replicate what we were doing in the sport. Does that make sense? So take what the sport is doing and then what methods or theories they're using to be successful in their sport, use those theories and bring it back into Rugby Sevens. Um, and that really created a lot of out-of-the-box ideas and – ideas that weren't maybe traditionally used in even rugby for that matter. And, and it made it fun and exciting and it kind of developed the USA, uh, US style of rugby, if you may. But if you want to get more traditional style, I mean, there's a few couple books out there that you can read as far as rugby conditioning. I've, I've looked at it. There's a conditioning book for rugby sevens. 
uh, came out last year, I believe. But I think you just have to go talk to coaches. A lot of times in rugby, you just talk to the coach and then you kind of understand or do an internship. There's not a lot of internships. Try to get to the USOC or maybe Adivis rugby is pretty big. Um, there's a couple other little pockets of rugby in, in the U.S. But if you go internationally, you'll you'll see it in Australia, England, New Zealand. I mean, Europe is a little, a little more advanced as far as that, but as far as Ireland and stuff, but in France. But, yeah. Were there any coaches that you reached out to abroad that were particularly influential at all? There was just staff. There, honestly, it was mostly staff that was on the series. Tyler from Canada, Matt from New Zealand. There was it was those coaches that were. There was an Ireland coach I reached out to quite a bit. Uh, we kind of just went back and forth on like, what are you doing for testing? We just meet on on series stops. So that's what I mean, like putting yourself out there, seeing what your network is is kind of built of and then just using your resources just talk to them and see what they're doing a lot of times they're doing the same thing it's it's the athletes that got to make the field the plays on the field and then how you develop your culture and get the buy-in in it jared thanks a lot for coming on the podcast today um if anybody wants to reach out to you if they have any questions or comments regarding the podcast what's the best way they can do so I think uh, email is probably my best it's s-i-e-g-m-0-1-0 at gmail.com um, shoot me an email, whatever you want. Any questions, happy to answer. Um, I'm an open book. I like to share. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me, James. Appreciate it. Yeah, and I'll make sure I put that in the show notes. And like I said, thanks for coming on, sharing your knowledge, talking a little bit about the Women's Rugby Sevens program here in the U.S., which is something that's going to continue to evolve. And I think rugby will continue to evolve here in the United States. So uh, appreciate it. Yes, thank you. Thanks again for listening to another episode of the Historic Performance Podcast. I really want to thank everyone who has gone out there to either write a review or give a rating to the podcast on iTunes. I greatly appreciate it. If you can continue to do so, it helps other people discover the show. And I'll see you guys next week.